Welcome to the new episode of Worldly, Vox's foreign policy podcast, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about why Trump seems to hate his own attorney general, his own national security advisor, for good measure, possibly his own secretary of state, and possibly his own secretary of defense. What it means if two of the three adults in the room who are meant to keep Trump foreign policy from getting too, too crazy decide to leave, and what comes next. On Elsewhere, we bring you this bizarre story of a far-right group in Europe that's trying to intercept boats of migrants on the Mediterranean by shooting flares at their ships and accusing aid groups of human trafficking, and all of that is literally true. But we're going to start closer to home, where Donald Trump stunned D.C., including Republicans as well as Democrats, by very abruptly announcing on the anniversary of the exact same day where Harry Truman integrated the military that he was going to ban transgender troops. This shocked a lot of people on the Hill, including the defense secretary, Jim Mattis. That's in large part because this is not something Jim Mattis has said he agrees with. Do you believe that allowing LGBT Americans to serve in the military or women in combat is undermining our lethality? Uh, Frankly, Senator, I've never cared much about two consenting adults and who they go to bed with. Uh, Is there something innate in being a woman or LGBT that would cause you to believe that they could not be part of a lethal force? No. So that was Jim Mattis at his confirmation hearing, basically saying as explicitly as he could, LGBT troops can serve. There's no problem. They don't harm the force. Donald Trump yesterday said the opposite. And let's unpack. Let's unpack what it means, not just that decision, but what it means when you have our whole national security apparatus, our whole foreign policy apparatus, and in the case of Sessions and the FBI, the whole law enforcement apparatus, in this like sudden turmoil that I think people haven't necessarily tracked because of the healthcare debacle. Let's start with something about the transgender decision that seems like a detail, but isn't. Secretary Mattis was on vacation when this happened. So this is a policy that during his confirmation hearings, as we just heard, he said he disagreed with, that was announced while he was on vacation (laughs) with minimal consultation. And according to one report, Trump did it because some hardline Republicans on the Hill asked him to. I want to be clearer. They asked him to after they asked Mattis for a smaller version of the same policy, and he said no. Let's just be even clearer on that. They didn't ask for a ban. They didn't even ask for what he did, is the thing. So some parts of the House GOP, I guess, wanted to get rid of this policy proposal having to do with funding in DOD for transgender service members to pay for things like um, like hormone treatments and for surgery. And this is like a an issue that's kind of controversial among some far-right conservatives. So that was the issue. They wanted to basically pull that out of this defense spending package, security package deal. And they have been trying to get Mattis to, to sign off on that. And he kind of was pushing back and trying, I guess, avoid them um, and trying to kind of push it off to the side. Then he went on vacation. They decided to basically circumvent him and go right to the White House. And then Trump decided to instead just announce a blanket ban on transgender service people. And there was a great quote, I think it was in the Politico piece, um, that was just fascinating. It was from a senior White House aide. I think I saw something recently saying that, you know, even a janitor would describe themselves as a senior White House aide if you're off the record. But anyway, saying that this was like if they asked the White House to light a candle on the table and instead they set the entire table on fire. And I thought that was a really great quote. That was from a congressional source. Okay, was it a congressional source? Okay, right. Yeah, that makes more sense. But it was just a stunning quote. that, Like, they weren't even asking for this sweeping major policy. And it just seems like Trump, I'm guessing, doesn't know anything and just made this huge sweeping thing based on nothing. Right. So, like, this is a big deal, obviously, for the trans community in the United States and for sort of basic human rights concerns and, and commitment to equality in the U.S. government. But when we talk about U.S. foreign policy, this kind of Pentagon decision-making matters not just because it affects the military's ability to focus on fighting and training when they're dealing with the political branches interfering with a policy that they had gotten used to, but it speaks to the fact that the policymaking procedure in the United States, the way that the president and his staff make decisions, is completely broken. This is not what should happen in a normal White House about an important and controversial Pentagon staffing decision. It's not what should happen about anything that relates to a major part of U.S. foreign policy. This is the president, as Jen just said, being asked to light a candle and burning the house down. Right. Without consultation 
with Mattis, it, it seems like in any meaningful sense, when people called the Pentagon yesterday, the Pentagon was like, we don't know. Talk to the White House. And the it's, White House <laughs> said no comment, basically, until Sarah Huckabee Sanders had a press conference and said, oh, we'll work it out. So process stuff is often inherently not sexy, right? right. When we think about the sexy parts of our jobs, mm-hmm. the things that often get clicks, it's this person got fired. This person got insulted. This is Jeff Sessions being humiliated. Stephen Colbert yesterday had a clip of Jeff Sessions being likened to a Keebler elf, which I think is pretty much exactly right. But our, Were Keebler our, elves really racist? Our, though, elf, because... our, uh, our elf friend being moderately humiliated. But process matters. And on the transgender issue, it matters a lot. So Jim Mattis wasn't saying, I will never do this. He wasn't saying, I'm diametrically opposed to doing this. What he was saying explicitly, and this is why I flag it, is we, the Pentagon, are in the middle of a full review of this policy, where we're talking to the service branches, we're talking to the Joint Chiefs, we're in the middle of this review. Let the review finish. And so, Zach, you know, to your point about policy being broken, that's an example of policy being broken. The way a bureaucracy should work, especially a bureaucracy like the Pentagon, is you review things. You take it slow. You don't just kind of start firing on Twitter and then change a policy that affects thousands of troops. There's also a number yesterday that I just found outrageous. So one of the arguments that's been made by the social conservatives that Jen flagged a little bit earlier is the Pentagon can't afford this. Right. right. So the, the figure that currently is being spent by the Pentagon on gender reassignment, surgery, and hormone therapy is $5 million, roughly. Tammy Duckworth pointed out yesterday all over television that the Pentagon currently spends about $120 million a year on Viagra and erectile dysfunction medication. And numbers can, statistics can sometimes be misused, but that's just a sickening, sickening difference. Unfucking believable. It, it's hard. It's hard to know what else to say about a number like that. Totally. Uh, but more in a sort of step back way, this isn't just the Pentagon, right? As I was trying to hint at earlier, the State Department is currently missing most of its top officials. Rex Tillerson, the Secretary also of on State, vacation, right, is taking some time, and his spokesman couldn't really explain where he was because he wasn't officially announced on vacation in a press briefing. She had to ask a reporter whether it was normal for secretaries of state to be on to announce if they're on vacation. And the reporter said yes, and she was stumped. The National Security Council, currently, you're hearing reports the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, is on the outs in the White House. He tried to fire a staffer earlier this year, uh, a very young man who didn't seem to be qualified for his position running all of uh, the NSC's intelligence operations, named Ezra Cohen-Watnick. Trump's staff stepped in and prevented him from firing this guy, because he was a Trump loyalist. It just, in every major branch of U.S. foreign policymaking right now, the normal way in which decisions get made in any healthy organization, not just like the U.S. government, like literally your company, your office, wherever you work, if it worked like this, it would be a disaster. Right. And I think speaking to kind of your your bigger point about the broader foreign policy kind of apparatus and how this is made— There was a staggering report yesterday, and I'm sorry, I can't remember if if either of you guys remember who it was who reported it, but that when Trump first tweeted out the policy, the first few tweets weren't really clear what it was about, and some people at the Pentagon were speculating and horrified that it was going to be a strike on North Korea. Yes, this was a a BuzzFeed article. Okay, and they were worried that, oh my God, maybe it's a—that's insane— the, the U.S. military, that DOD, that the Pentagon, like the center of decision-making power for American military might and operations and thousands and tens of thousands of troops around the country were holding their breath to see like the third or fourth Trump tweet to see if maybe we just launched a strike on North Korea. Oh, no, it's fine. It was just a blanket ban on trans service members, which is also really devastating policy, especially because we talk about process. And, like, why this matters. It's not just, you know, Trump likes to talk about bureaucracy and, you know, we need to get rid of all this. And and Steve Bannon likes to talk about that, like, we need to dismantle, like, these institutions. But they're there for a reason. The Pentagon oversees tens of thousands of people and lives who matter and who get paychecks and who have families. And they didn't think through any of this policy and they just announced this change, which means there are people currently serving in harm's way right now, who now don't know if they're even allowed to continue serving, if they have a job tomorrow. That's not how you run a country. It's not how you fight a war. And like the entire argument that this is about readiness, you actually just screwed yourself on readiness because you have all these people who don't even know if they're going to be allowed to serve tomorrow. So, right, Jen, that's a really good point, The that last thing about uh, whether or not it applies to people serving right now. Because 
a ban on transgender service could mean lots of different things. It could mean new people coming in, or it could mean that you have to go out and find anyone who might be trans and fire them in the military right now. The fact that this was announced over Twitter indicates that the president didn't know or didn't care to figure out how the policy actually worked and the thousands of people who are in the military right now, how their lives would be affected. That's why you don't do policy over Twitter. It's why you do all of these detailed policy processes that we've been talking about because policy is hard and complicated. And when you just announce things in a tweet, invariably, things get screwed up. Yeah, like the idea of coming in and shaking up Washington and like even having that kind of tech startup like innovate and be disruptive. There's a reason that the U.S. government isn't operated that way. And yeah, there are areas of the government and the bureaucracy that are bloated. Absolutely. I'm the first person, maybe the second, I don't know, to come in and say, like, yeah, there's probably some fat we can trim off of some bureaucracies, right? There are multiple redundancies. But the reason that most of these processes exist is because these aren't just theoretical ideas. These are actual policies that affect real Americans and non-Americans, real humans. And you can't just come in and do whatever you want and shake things up. It sounds sexy in a campaign speech, but you're actually fucking with people's lives. I think that's exactly right. And But let's take a, a step slightly further back because healthcare dominates right now everything. I mean, the best and most talented people right now in Vox, except for the very talented people on our team, are doing extraordinary coverage of healthcare, but it kind of obscures and obliterates everything else that's happening. We were talking at a meeting yesterday about how what this obscures is kind of the fundamental breakdown of the national security apparatus in a big way. And I want to I drill into that a little bit. Right. So when you think about something as basic and fundamental as the line of succession to the president, the president, something happens to him, he goes to the vice president, then to the speaker of the house, then to the president pro tem of the Senate, then to the secretary of state, and then a couple notches beyond that to the attorney general. So we're in this moment now where people who are not just random cabinet officials, but some of the most cabinet officials who matter most are in the case of Jeff Sessions, twisting the wind, getting insulted every day. In the case of Rex Tillerson, mysteriously disappearing for a few days where nobody really knows where he is or what he's doing. And who which, can blame him? Which comes, incidentally, after reports of him getting into shouting matches with White House staffers because he's getting his picks vetoed, and where he is having his views of Iran policy being ignored, his views of how to defuse a very diplomatic crisis between the Saudi Arabians and the Qataris being overruled. So that's Jeff Sessions, that's Rex Tillerson, H.R. McMaster is getting mocked publicly when he gives a speech at a friendly think tank about Trump's love for NATO, and people laughed at him in a very literal sense. H.R. McMaster is being overruled on Afghanistan and on Russia. So that's the National Security Advisor. And then as we were talking about with Jim Mattis, he's being ignored and kind of overruled when it comes to transgender policy in the military. And, And that's where I think we should really focus a little bit. When you have not one, not two, not three, but four major people being either ignored, humiliated, or pushed out the door, And two of those three people, Jim Mattis, H.R. McMaster, Rex Tillerson, these were the mythological unicorn-like adults in the room. That was the phrase. They were the ones who were going to keep Trump from randomly bombing North Korea, randomly tearing up the Iran deal. And now it's plausible. It's possible. There is money you could bet. Predicted a market I use and bet often. One could bet if one were named Yelke Adrizen. Yeah, you guys have to understand Yelke loves to bet about things and and does it all the time. And by love— I mean, passionately love. But you can bet on those on their departures. And right now, if you were to go to predict it and try to bet, the money is on McMaster leaving and Tillerson leaving and Sessions leaving. That's bonkers. And by the money is on, we mean Yochi's Children's College Fund is riding on. <laughs> Hello, West Point. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really important point. The point about the Iran deal and Afghanistan, H.R. McMaster was highly respected, and I say was, and that's horrifying. He's a three-star general. You know, he was at TRADOC. I mean, he has been involved Sorry, what, in— what's TRADOC? Uh, it's a it's combatant, a, lower it's combatant a, command it's joint the, operations center it, It's thing. the extraordinarily wonkily named Training and Doctrine Command, which right. what it does basically is it oversees the way the military trains and what the military's philosophy is for fighting wars. It is one of the most boring jobs you could have in the military. It matters, but it is boring as fuck. Right. Anyway, the um, point is, so this is a guy who's a real policy expert. Right. He's a policy expert, and he also has commanded actual troops. Um, so he's a smart guy. He's very well-respected. He's Army three-star general. You don't get there by just being a, a crazy person who doesn't know what they're doing. And he was literally laughed at by a group of people who, like you said, it's like a friendly think tank. You know, people who know his 
his record doing, you know, counterinsurgency and that kind of thing in the past. Zach, I I know you had talked about this, but the fact is that, like, this guy and then Jim Mattis, like, when they were brought in, it was this, oh, thank God. It was this sigh of relief in Washington, like, oh, okay, at least there are going to be some grownups. Yeah, Trump is crazy, and he tweets a lot and stuff, but he can do that, but we'll have the adults who are the ones, you know, actually implementing policy, you know, who are actually doing things, who are actually going to NATO meetings, who are going to Qatar and talking to the to the Qataris and working with the Saudis. You know, we have real policy people who are in charge. And it turns out that if they go on vacation or probably just go to the restroom for five minutes, then Trump can essentially upend their entire efforts. I mean, with Mattis, you know, with Secretary Mattis, he— you know, similarly, is you know well respected, and whether or not you agree on his various views, you know, he's pretty hawkish on Iran, but he's not someone to be trifled with. He's not someone that is just like a Mike Flynn kind of character who has been on the fringes of the kind of military community for a while now. These are people that are well respected across Washington, and for good reason, not just because they're respected because they have positions of power. They earned them. They proved that they are good at what they do. And the, the problem for me that I keep thinking of is as these people get stuck twisting in the wind, as he keeps screwing these over, you're going to quickly run out of people who are going to want to work in this administration. They already had a hard time with the never Trumpers, with Trump you know, being able to get over the fact that some people said they would never serve. I mean, I was talking to, to Mark, my boyfriend, who's a U.S. Army major, about McMaster and when he got asked. And I, and I said, he was saying that yeah, you know, it sucks for McMaster because he's a three-star and now he's kind of boxed himself in because he's in this job and, like, what do you do? Like, he can't really quit because he would have to essentially retire from the military or he'd have to find another job and Congress would have to approve him for some other job. But the thing is, like, he was saying that a bunch of people in the U.S. Army community were kind of saying, like, this sucks, you know, that he boxed himself in. And I, so I asked Mark, I said, but it's the commander-in-chief. If he had come to you and said, I want you to be my national security advisor— Would you have said no? He's like, hell no, of course I would say yes. Like, you have to serve. And that's the thing is that you have these smart people who are essentially getting the careers destroyed over and over because they're doing their service to their country, and Trump does not give a shit about that. He doesn't care. You piss him off, and you're dead to him. It is hard to overstate the damage that this does. Uh, The other day I was talking to somebody who— his name's Hank Cohen. He was the top State Department official for Africa under George H.W. Bush. And he was telling me that he has basically never seen a State Department this dysfunctional. Right. And the reason why is that all of the top policy people are not in positions because they're political appointees and Tillerson couldn't get the people that he wanted in those jobs. And as a result, you have people filling in who are basically continuing status quo policy, but they can't make new policy decisions. You need top-level officials to do policy reviews and come up with new ideas. So on U.S. policies towards a variety of civil wars in Africa, towards development, right, issues that affect hundreds of millions of people, there's just no, there's no adaptation to new events. There's just, we have to keep doing what we're doing and not, and can't rethink our continuing approach. And that's just one sub-policy area in one department. When we're talking about failures at the top level, at the highest level, forget it. It's, imagine there's a real crisis. Imagine North Korea, as it's done in the past, sinks a South Korean destroyer. And the United States is too busy dealing with its own problems, fighting amongst the people who are supposed to make the decision about whether or not we should retaliate militarily against North Korea to be able to take some kind of action here. Like, this administration hasn't been tested by an external crisis. They've only been tested by crises of their own making. I think that last point cannot be stressed enough. Right. In a weird way, Trump, who has gotten lucky in the past in the sense that you can survive Access Hollywood, scandal after scandal after scandal, we're six months in, which is amazing because it feels like we're years in. In the Obama era, it feels like when there were still movies that didn't have sound. <laughs> no age jokes towards me, please. Talkies. Talkies. But it, it does feel like years ago, but it was only six months. But in those six months, it is incredibly lucky that we have not had, Zach, as you say, a military crisis. We also haven't had a major terror attack. I mean, if you have Trump, who already is, shall we be very diplomatic and say, wary of Muslims, and many of his advisors hate and fear Muslims, if there is a Muslim extremist terror attack and Jeff Sessions is twisting the wind, and we don't have a national security advisor who's empowered, we don't have a secretary of state who's empowered, then what happens? But there's one other thing I I just want to flag. There was a fantastic article this week by Susan Glasser, 
who's a former editor of Politico, former editor of Foreign Policy, a really talented reporter and writer. And it was about Trump's war within. And it focused very heavily on H.R. McMaster and on the way that he is just being increasingly ignored and shoved aside, not just by the White House staff, but also by Rex Tillerson and Jim Mattis. So you have this kind of circular firing squad where they're being shot at by White House staffers and they're shooting at themselves. McMaster in particular, the decision where he is being overruled most clearly is Afghanistan. Right. McMaster is trying to do a review of Afghanistan policy. He's recommending more troops. He's recommending that the mission continue. And Trump is overruling him. I personally believe very strongly that this is a case where Trump is actually making the right choice because we've been fighting there for 16 years. We've lost thousands of people. I have no idea why more troops now might turn around when nothing has turned around in the past. But regardless, this is National Security Advisor doing his job and being overruled by other cabinet members and by the Trump White House. And that's amazing. Right. And no, absolutely. I was, I'm glad you brought up that piece. Um, I think that was the same piece, if I'm not mistaken, where they mentioned, and I think Politico also did an interview um, with the the former special envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan, who's a woman who had been doing this for a while. Special envoys are essentially like diplomats who serve in special kind of areas. So we would have a diplomat for an embassy in Afghanistan or Pakistan, but this is someone who kind of focuses on special issue areas. And she essentially like with almost no warning, was told that her job is essentially gone, that they're not going to have that anymore. And that's staggering because regardless of whether you want to draw down in Afghanistan, you want to completely remove every U.S. involvement whatsoever in Afghanistan, or you want to have a modest troop increase or whatever, you still need to have someone who's there to do that policy and to talk about those things with the people on the ground. And it's just staggering that it's not even that we're changing our Afghanistan policy. We're just forgetting our Afghanistan policy. There's no kind of strategic— I mean, Trump's never gone to Afghanistan, either before or since becoming president. Apparently has nothing on on the schedule to ever go. It's like he just doesn't give a shit. There was that line that he, he gave to reporters earlier this week saying, you know, he was heading over to the Pentagon and he was going to, you know, I want to find out why we've been there for 17 years. Like, dude, you're six months into your presidency and you're just now thinking, you know, I should look up that Afghanistan country where U.S. troops are continuing to fight and die. That's an important point that I don't think we need to just breeze past. This isn't like something that we used to have a thing over there. Now we're kind of over it and we're supporting local troops. Like, there are still American military members who are dying and also Afghans and other people who also matter. So we're still there fighting a war in Afghanistan, and we just got rid of the special envoy, and Trump doesn't seem to give a shit about what we're doing. And here's McMaster saying, like, look, I'm doing this policy review. This is something, you know, McMaster personally cares about. I think he felt that under Obama that we fucked up the Afghanistan strategy and that if we had done it a different way, it would have gone better. And this is kind of his second chance to kind of say, like, now we can do it right. You know, I'm theoretically in a position of power where I can, you know, make this happen. And and it's a smart guy. And, you know, whether you agree or disagree with his policy proposal, that's a debate as a country we should have. But it's not a debate we're having. It's not even a debate that Trump seems to be having. He's just like, no, I don't like that. Come back with something else. Are you hiring? And are you wondering where to post your job so you find the best candidates? We are, actually. One of the joys of being at Vox.com and part of Vox Media is we are thankfully growing. And we do have a lot of jobs posted. And they are really hard to fill. So if you're wondering, how do you do that? How do you find the people who make a great business greater, a successful business more successful, try ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you post your job to 100 job sites with just one click. And then their powerful technology matches the right people to your job, and they do it better than anyone else. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the candidates finding you. It finds them. And 80% of the jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in 24 hours. So there's no juggling emails. There's no juggling calls. You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, worldly listeners can post their jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free, for absolutely no charge. Go to ZipRecruiter.com worldly, ZipRecruiter.com worldly. Last time, ZipRecruiter.com worldly. Let's talk about the roots of this problem. Why is the Trump 
national security cabinet so dysfunctional? And it seems to me there's basically two reasons. The first is that the president doesn't know and doesn't care about policy. Right. And because he doesn't know and doesn't care, he delegates. When people do things he doesn't like that he decides he doesn't like for whatever reason because he constantly changes his mind, he gets mad at them and has no compunctions about publicly humiliating them. And so that is a combination of the president's lack of knowledge and uh, mercurialness, to put it nicely, as nicely as I can. The second reason is the primacy of political thinking in this White House. Right. Is when we look at the trans decision, uh, this is a great example. The reporting suggests that it was done because there was an impasse on Capitol Hill about Trump's border walls we discussed earlier. And the reason that there was an impasse was because of this bill that would defund gender reassignment surgery. That then led to the president trying to push the wall forward, right? And in doing so, making a major national security policy decision. On Twitter. Right. And White House officials admitted that the reasoning was political here. Right. And so policy decisions get subordinated to whatever the political interests are of the administration, not even of the Republican Party, narrowly speaking, of the president. Right. And so as a result, you end up getting decision-making that isn't done on the merits. It's done on the basis of whatever the perceived short-term political interest is. And that leads to chaos, and it makes it very difficult for people who care about policy to do their jobs. It's done literally on the fly. I think that Politico piece reporting about, you know, the kind of background machinations that were happening behind the Twitter trans ban uh, debacle, um, I think it said something about Steve Bannon was one of the ones who was pushing Trump to, like, do something quickly on this and to act quickly. So, again, like, he's the guy who's in there to defend and promote Trump's political aspirations. There, There's no broader conception about it. It's not like Steve Bannon probably had deep thoughts about military readiness and whether this would affect unit cohesion on the ground. Steve Bannon doesn't give a shit about that. He doesn't care about that. I can probably safely say, I don't know him personally, but I'm guessing that wasn't the biggest concern. But it was if you want to promote your agenda, the thing that you ran on, you know, your political kind of capital here, we got to do something on the wall. And if you want to make this happen, then you're going to have to give them this little thing that just happened to be a massive issue about trans people serving in the military and said, you need to act on this quickly, probably because Mattis wasn't there to be the voice of reason. And again, it's the political kind of expedient answer with no broader conception of grand strategy. I mean, if Steve Bannon's supposed to be this like brilliant strategist, right? Who, who, ah. right? He reads Clausewitz and Machiavelli and all this stuff, and he's you know supposed to be the. It doesn't seem like there's any actual even long term strategic thinking there. Like, in what way does Trump continuously? tweeting out shit and looking like an idiot and stepping into scandals that he didn't even need to be in in the first place that are of his own making. In what way is that, like, in their long-term political benefit? Well, so I, I would actually push back on on that and and also um, a little bit on, on what Zach said. So I'll, I'll start with, with Zach. I think there's a third part of this that matters at least as much as the other two, which is that for Trump, everything is personal. Everything. That's true. And when, right. he, when he doesn't like a political figure, an appointee, it's because he does like them as a person. When he used to mock Sean Spicer is because Sean Spicer first wore a bad suit and looked weak and was played by a woman on Saturday Night Live. And God forbid, H.R. McMaster, there's been reporting that he feels like McMaster talks too much at meetings, which he doesn't like. He feels like McMaster, when he goes abroad, overshadows Donald Trump and says things that makes Trump look like he's wrong. So he doesn't like McMaster for that reason. With Jeff Sessions, very clearly, Trump is so obsessed by the Russia probe and now sees it as a threat to him and his family, right. which to him, family trumps all, that he's willing to humiliate a close ally because he feels it as a personal slight. And I think the personal part of this, it can't be underplayed. Where I would push back a little bit on Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon right now, amazingly, and if we were to have talked six months ago about which member of the Trump cabinet and Trump advisor uh, roster would be lawyered up and which wouldn't, the fact that Steve Bannon is the only one who isn't lawyered up because he seems to have been relatively clean is amazing. And he actually has been the one person that on the Russia stuff in particular, first was pushing Trump not to fire Jim Comey, now is pushing Trump not to push out Jeff Sessions, and is pushing Trump not to fire Bob Mueller. And so in this weird way, Steve Bannon is sort of a voice of reason, which is kind of striking. Something I can't imagine ever having said before. But right, but six yeah. months in, that, that's that's where we are. The, vo the actual voices of reason, Jim Mattis, Rex Tillerson, H.R. McMaster, are being kind of ignored or sidelined. And then this totally unpredictable voice of reason is the one that weirdly we're coming 
as a country to rely on, which but is bizarre. This is this was always the problem with the adults in the room model, right? There, the idea was that cabinet officials who were appointed basically by the party would boss the president around. The president is a man who hates feeling like he's bossed around, right? Who wants to look dominant at all times. <laughs> Physically shoving people out of the way, right. if need be. And, and like the idea that people would be able to corral this guy right. into achieving a basically normal foreign policy seemed plausible at one point, but the flaws in the model are becoming increasingly clear. And now we're in a situation where we're stuck with Trump as president, barring Russia-related impeachment or some kind of shock resignation, for the next three and a half years. And it's not clear that anyone who has a functioning understanding of U.S. foreign policy is going to be able to survive under him. Or even anyone who has even some ideas that might be interested in curbing you know, the president. So some of the ideas of the adults in the room, there's also talk a lot about Ivanka and Jared being, which sounds like a weird off-brand, I don't know, fashion label, like Ivanka and Jared now at Target. But they were supposed to also be like this moderating force, right? Who was, I mean, remember there was talk kind of right at the beginning of the administration that there was speculation that it was because it was during Shabbat where they were they were not working that when Trump would get into most trouble because like they weren't around at the White House to like keep him from tweeting. So it was talk about like, is this problematic? It's Friday night and Saturday that he's you know getting into trouble. But Ivanka at least had made statements before about being somewhat supportive of the LGBTQ community. And there were people who were like, at least hopefully maybe they'll be able to kind of, they're somewhat more liberal, I would say completely liberal, maybe, those two. But clearly, they have no influence whatsoever either, which is, if he respects anyone or trusts anyone or listens to anyone, it's probably Ivanka, just in, in terms of personal respect and love, even if it's vaguely creepy. And if even she's just like, I don't know, I couldn't do anything or didn't even bother trying, who knows? But if even they can't, then what chance does McMaster wait, wait, have? I, I don't agree with that assessment, uh, basically at all. It's true that Ivanka loves to posture publicly about seeming liberal, but there's no indication that she's expended a lot of political capital internally to try to stop things like right. the ban on trans service. No, it's not, absolutely. It's not that she has no influence over her father. And Jared clearly has a lot of influence. He's been given tasks that, frankly, he shouldn't be, like being Israel-Palestine envoy and heading a task force to solve the opioid crisis at various different points in time in the White House. Like, he has a lot of influence. These people just don't seem to want to exercise it on these issues, or they're picking their battles because right. these priorities aren't ones that they think are significant. Or there's a, there's a third option, which is, and I also um, would push back a little bit, Jen, on what you were saying a second ago, they, they do have influence. They are using it. It is working. It's just working in a catastrophically misguided way. So Jared Kushner was one of the people who pushed for firing Jim Comey. Yep. He was somebody who pushed to do it. Steve Bannon pushed not to do it. Trump did it. So he has influence and it, and it is paying off. It's just paying off in this catastrophically misguided way. I, I do want to take one step back before we wrap the segment, which is why this matters in, in a substantive policy way. Right. Right. So there's the broken process. There's the talented people, you know, Jen, as you were saying earlier, either being pushed out or not being willing to serve. But then there are a couple of areas where the policy really matters here. And the, the biggest of them, and the one where it, it jumps out to me the most, is on Iran. We talked last week about how Trump had to be pushed into basically sticking with the Iran deal by H.R. McMaster, by Jim Mattis, by Rex Tillerson. There's reporting now about how he's looking ahead to September, the next time he'd have to recertify it, and is looking for ways, again, not to do it. And I think that's where this all kind of coalesces into a real problem. It's embarrassing for the country. It's embarrassing for the Trump administration. But substantively, it really matters because the people who are constraining his worst choices and his worst impulses on things like Iran, those are the people leaving. I talked earlier about how they haven't faced a crisis other than of their own making. I'd want to push that even further to Yoki's point. They can do a lot to make even worse crises than the ones they've created. Canceling the Iran deal would spark a massive crisis. It would mean Iran would like either kick out inspectors and start going down the nuclear path again, or it could potentially mean military action in the Middle East. It's terrifying. The prospect of canceling the Iran deal, uh, it's not a light thing. It's not a theoretical thing. It's not a Washington policy choice. It, it is the lives of millions of people. 
Right. right. We're literally it, talking about nuclear weapons on the line here. Right. This is this is not funny. It's not a game. Right. And it's so easy to make facile House of Cards and Game of Thrones analogies. And like that's fun and funny. But we're talking about the most powerful country in the world led by a man who can't even keep his own team stable, let alone the global order that the United States has built and is tasked with with organizing, really. And things like the Iran deal could unravel entire regions. It's it's terrifying. And it also doesn't make sense in terms of his make America great again, right? If part of America's greatness is that it helped build this liberal international kind of world order and that it uses its you know military might, its economic might, its diplomatic power, its soft power to kind of shape the world in ways that benefit it and its allies and its interests, then one would think that the Iran deal, you know, being able to pull together all these different countries and groups with disparate interests and have them all kind of agree on this really thorny policy issue, that that is something, whether you agree or disagree with the deal, you know, when it was being negotiated and whether it was a good idea, I think it's pretty clear, it's hard to argue against the fact that this is a place where U.S. power and diplomacy is being shown on the world stage and is being influential. And the fact that this could just be completely unraveled, you know, your point about, you know, North Korea and South Korea— if something were to happen and there would be debate within the administration about how to even operate and how to even respond and whether to do this or that, it's completely unraveled. And that is historically part of what the American kind of greatness idea is. So it doesn't even seem to make sense in Trump's own conception of the world. It doesn't even seem like what he's doing is actually furthering his own agenda in so many ways. One thing we talk a lot about within the Vox newsroom in beautiful DuPont Circle, randomly located above a Brooks Brothers, which is wonderful since no one in our office would wear anything that looks remotely like a Brooks Brothers It's outfit. also right across the street from H&M, which is definitely more our price range, I would think. And also, I think more the style sense. For anybody wondering I, if- Yeah, Vox, I've, I've, if, spilled, uh, I've spilled coffee on my shirt before like uh, an event or TV appearance and gone, to H&M. and gone to H&M to buy a new shirt. Oh yeah, no, totally. More than once. Or like one of those things where you like have to be on camera for something. I'm like, shit, yeah. I need a blazer. I'll just go to H&M. <laughs> $12 later, I look professional. And I think also for people who may wonder if the Vox staff look like what they imagine the Vox staff look oh, like. Oh, we so do. Oh, we do. There's a lot of tattoos. There are a lot of beards. There are a lot of t-shirts. Check out the Vox Instagram feed. There are also of, shorts. You'll see like to wear shorts around the office. He's probably the most pro shorts guy at the office, yeah. if I had to say. Yeah, there's an ongoing discussion about shorts shaming on Slack. But the reason I mention all of this is not simply because of Vox's sartorial splendor, but it's because it's easy when we're in D.C. to think everything is D.C. Everything right. is the U.S. Everything is Trump. And for elsewhere, we're going to talk about something that has nothing to do with the U.S. and nothing to do with Washington and blessedly and amazingly nothing to do with Trump. And so for elsewhere, we're going to zoom across the world. We're going to zoom to the Mediterranean. We're going to zoom to Europe and to a group called Generation Identity that our colleague Sarah Wildman has written about frequently and very sharply. Their basic view is that, and they're not alone in this, certainly, that migration into Europe, especially by Muslims, although they wouldn't say the Muslim part, is a huge threat. They want to stop it, and they want to stop it by intercepting boats. If the politicians won't stop the boats, then we'll stop the boats. Whoa! Whoa. We need to chance, we need to chance. the flag. What you were hearing there was a Canadian woman named Lauren Southern who is proving that Zach's love of all things Canada may not necessarily be deserved. But that sound in the background, the whoosh, that was them firing flares at a ship run by Doctors Without Borders, picking up migrants. They were shooting flares at that ship. And you just throw your hands up and do the emoji shrug, shrug but in real life. Yeah, so this story has been kind of bubbling up and to her immense credit and wonderful, incredible reporting skill, like you said, our colleague Sarah Wildman kind of picked up on this story before I think a lot of other outlets really started paying attention. I mean, there was reporting out there. But she did a really fascinating feature on this group, Generation Identity, and but it's kind of like the 20-something alt-right YouTube-savvy crowd who did this crowdfunding campaign, because of course they did, because how else would you do something? I don't know. They probably paid each other on Venmo. I don't know. But am I allowed to say that on here? Um, Some attacking at Venmo. Right. I'm sure it's useful. I don't really know. Please sponsor us, Venmo. I still write checks. So basically, they did this crowdfunding campaign to try to raise money to buy their own boat so that they go intercept 
these non-governmental organizations, these aid organizations that are out there rescuing people who are literally drowning in the Mediterranean Sea at staggering numbers. And they are essentially kind of pushing this conspiracy theory that these aid organizations are actually themselves engaged in illegal human trafficking. So it was this really horrifying story, like these evil, awful 20-something YouTube trolls who are literally going to try to stop aid boats from rescuing desperately poor people, men, women, and children, grandmothers, who are fleeing war zones and economic privation and drowning in the Mediterranean, and they want to intercept these boats. Except that there's kind of so far now been a happy ending, which is that they got fucking owned so hard. Do you want to talk about this part, Zach? Because it's really fucking hilarious. Yeah. So they were in Cyprus after getting detained in Egypt because they were trying to get the boat up from Djibouti. This is how complicated this was. So this is, you know, going along the eastern part of the Mediterranean at this point. And they get to Cyprus and their boat gets stopped with a bunch of people on it from Asia. From Sri um, Lanka. Yeah, yeah. Of all places. And they get stopped on suspicion of trafficking them. Before that, they actually got detained for a short time in Egypt, trying to go through the Suez Canal, for not having the proper documentation. They didn't have the legal paperwork, which is just, mwah, like so you really clear, can't make that up. These people were undocumented migrants, <laughs> migrants who possibly were engaged in human trafficking, which is literally exactly what they were accusing aid groups of doing. Like, the irony is palpable, and it, it gives you two lenses on this story, right? The first one is these people are hilarious in competence. Like, what do you do when a bunch of people who spend their day talking on YouTube try to actually do things in the real world, and it turns out that fails? The second part of it is... These are horrible racists from around the world, specifically North America and Europe, organizing together to try to get migrants killed. So, right? That's what it is, right? They don't say that, but if you're like the crossing the Mediterranean is very dangerous if you're a refugee. They often go in rickety boats. And the NGOs are there to help deal with the fact that they often are dealing with unethical people who have sub code boats are trying to take people across. Or literally selling fake life jackets. Remember that story? Yes. I mean, this is one of those cases also where part of it is funny. I mean, as the resident old person, I always think when I see a story like this, millennials are the worst. But the- That's the, offensive. Jen, uh, Jen flagged- Old people crash the economy. Sorry, yeah. go on. Well, whatever. Everyone makes a mistake. <laughs> There's a, uh, but the, the numbers here that Jen mentioned a moment ago are, are really horrific. In 2016, there were at least 5,000 people who drowned to death in the Mediterranean. 5,000. So far this year, according to Amnesty International, it will be worse. So there are thousands of people trying to make this journey across. Many thousands of them are dying. And this group, and if you watch their YouTube videos, which are offensive and how lighthearted they are, they posted on Instagram this image. They were saying that they had to be in disguise in, in Cyprus. They posted this image. They, they are, and I, and I should say this not glibly, it's an attractive group of people and they play that up. And so two of the women who were in it took this they posted, we have to be in disguise. And it's basically them kind of goofing around with like hats and fake mustaches and beards. So on the one hand, you know, Zach, I think your frame is, is right. Parts of this you can sort of laugh at. And then there's also the frame of they're trying to stop people from surviving. And all of that said, there is this kind of interesting policy question that to use a, a word that Jen and I make fun of a lot because it's often used uh, by, by Vox business side people, it surfaces an issue. And, and the issue that it surfaces, which I think is legitimate, is if you are an aid group or if you are a country and, and you say in any way, we will provide you refuge and shelter, are you inadvertently encouraging people to make that trip a risky trip and possibly die along the way? And that's a fair question. It's a good question. These racist idiots are not the ones who should be debating the question. But I do find that question sort of hanging over all of the mockery kind of interesting. To me, that indicates that European countries and the European Union in general needs to put its money where its mouth is. And I mean that literally. If you want to have a policy of being open to refugees and migration, you need to put the money down to make sure those people can get into your country safely and you need to welcome them in and stop putting, as some countries in Europe have, literal walls on your border to try to keep refugees from entering. And to me, the benefits of immigration and migration are not debatable at this point. The economics is very clear that European countries would be much better off for a variety of different reasons if they let in more people. 
And the only arguments against them that are internally coherent, I don't mean that are good, that are internally coherent, are arguments based on cultural identity, which is why this movement is so important. They speak to the real core of anti-immigrant sentiment in, in Europe and in North America, which is xenophobia and racism, which is a sense that we don't like these people in our culture to the point where there are some people who are willing to go out and try to get them killed. Right. But I think, and absolutely, but I think what's interesting is it's similar to the kind of rise of the alt-right we've seen here in the U.S., our branch of it, is that there's a kind of deeper feeling among like a broader swath of the population, you know, sometimes kind of older, almost definitely white people. It's this kind of cultural invasion, like narrative. But what you see are these social media savvy, attractive, you know, one of the Lauren Southern, I think she's, you know, like a little blonde white girl. And the picture of them, you know, in their little disguises, she's wearing like a little red wig. And they're like, oh my God, we're hiding. We think the police are following us. Y'all are really high on these morally ugly people being tracked. No, that's that's the thing is that because they're, they're not just like, you know, good looking and savvy on YouTube. They're also really careful in their narrative and to not do anything that's exciting, that's explicitly racist or explicitly, it's all there if you look at what they're doing, but they're never like, you know, we really don't like the Muslims or the blacks. Like they never say anything like that. But what's fascinating is that you, you talked about that post where they put the picture of them in disguise and the quote that Lauren Southern actually gave to BuzzFeed was staggering and it's just, I, I don't even have words for it. So she said that they were literally scared for their personal safety. And here's the quote. There's some serious bullshittery going on here. There is a safety risk, and the media caused this, and they may seriously get a bunch of 20-year-olds killed. Honey, you were literally trying to get a bunch of men, women, and children killed. Pumpkin, go home. This isn't a joke. And that's the thing is that this kind of alt-right is taking these really ugly, darker kind of movements and currents that countries have been trying to work through and work out for a long time and surfacing it in a way that's attractive and flashy and seems like fun and lighthearted, and it gets more people to pay attention. You know, it gets us to talk about them. But it speaks to a deeper, broader kind of problem that's always been there, these kind of currents of racism and xenophobia. It's just that they're in this kind of flashy new package. And that's why I do, you know, talk about the way they look and the way they talk, because it seems so innocuous and so silly, and you just want to write them off. But they're representing a much deeper thing that is much more visceral and harder to get rid of in society. So I agree with very literally every consonant and vowel that, that Jen just spoke. Uh, the only thing that I, that I would also add to it is it's easier to feel like you want to watch this video if the face on that video looks, sounds, and talks like you. Right. Right. So if the same message is being done by this 65-year-old ranting, raving, Alex Jones, InfoWars type, that's one thing. But when it's a 20-year-old, who uses Instagram, uses YouTube well, it's easier to watch. And you might watch it and not even understand what it is you're watching. You might just watch it and think, hey, this is kind of funny, and not know that you're watching something profoundly ugly. What's also interesting to me about this group is, during the French elections, Marine Le Pen cast herself as a defender of secular values. Right. Her pitch was, I'm not a racist, I'm not a neo-Nazi, I will protect you gay people, and you Jews, and you women from this other group, Muslims, in her view, who don't share your values and will attack you. And that was her defense. I'm going to protect you as a secular person against people who are religious and threaten you. And this group is making a similar argument. They're saying, hey, we're not trying to sink boats. It's just these other NGOs are, are so dangerous. The other NGOs are the villain. We're trying to save lives. And so to Jen's point, they try to make themselves pretty in a very literal physical sense. Right. They also try to hide their message and make it sound like they're humanitarian, which is grotesque. But as we've seen with Marine Le Pen, she lost, but she did have support. As we've seen with other groups like this, part of what the reason why they can resonate is they don't have the message of hate. They have this false message of of love. Right. And actually, just to not always tie everything back to Trump, but to go back to the trans ban, you know, people are always kind of retweeting these old Trump tweets that seem to just completely speak to something he just did. But that so somebody retweeted a tweet from shortly after the Orlando terror attack where he was saying Dear LGBTQ community, I will defend you. Hillary wants to bring in all these people who want to harm you and take away your rights. And what he was essentially saying without saying it was she wants to let in these Muslim immigrants, right, who 
in this perception of what that means is they want to institute Sharia and they want to kill gay people. So it was kind of this same attempt, that same narrative to use LGBTQ rights as a wedge. What's great about America and about the LGBTQ community and the Muslim community in America is they said, basically, fuck you, we don't buy that. You're not allowed to drive a wedge. You are not going to do that. And there were amazing kind of solidarity marches and protests that were like, no, you're not going to divide us. That doesn't work. But the thing is that that narrative is even here in this country, and you see Trump do it. And then, you know, you see the kind of bullshittery, to quote Lauren Southern, behind it when he does something like this trans ban. Like, it's just bullshit political narrative posturing. It's not an actual concern for these kinds of rights and values. I have a lot of difficulty keeping an even keel when talking about people like this, the Lauren Southerns right. of the world. right? So I have a ring on my right finger. It's gold. It's my grandfather's. He and my grandmother got identical ones made after they met in a refugee camp in 1945. Then they made it to the United States. Thankfully, they survived. But pretty much all of their family members were killed by Hitler. Right. They're refugees. My family is refugees. I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the United States allowing refugee resettlement in our country. And many of my family members might have lived had the U.S. allowed more refugee resettlement further in the past. Anti-migrant sentiment is not funny when there are people in need. It is not cute. Right. It is not Instagram-worthy. It is not Snapchatty. Yet these people are treating it like they're Kardashians. Right. Like hating migrants is something that you do for fun. That making up conspiracy theories about the NGOs that literally save people's lives is something that gets you followers, something to meme about. It's outrageous. It's beyond outrageous. Yeah. And yet they get written up in a lot of these things as if they're just jokes. And they are in the sense that they're incompetent. That's the only thing that has saved lives here is that these people are idiots, but they're also idiots who have developed a following. And for all of you who are listening at home, I want you to sit and think, what is it about our culture that breeds these people now? What is it about the ideas that are dominant in our society that allows them to gain an audience, especially among young people, where polling suggests that it should be the most tolerant group of people ever to live on Earth? Right. What is the real source of their popularity and why are they getting close to killing people? And with that, we'd like to close for the week. We want to thank our producer, Peter Leonard. If thanks, you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Hi, Peter. If you are listening to us, and we hope you are, and we hope you like, and we hope you want to share, please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review in particular. It's especially important. Go to SoundCloud, go to Stitcher, go to Google Play. You can find the podcast in many places, listen to it in many places, subscribe to it in many places. Tell a friend. Tell a friend, tell a loved one, tell a relative. And we look forward to talking to all of you again next week.